True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The little girl talks to her father on the phone. She babbles away about how she's watching television and then, in true three-year-old fashion, breaks into random song. Her voice echoes through the line, as though it will never be silenced. But it will. Soon, the song will end, and the little girl will be silent forever. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to Episode 75, The Murder of Poppy van der Merwe. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new supporters for the week. A huge thank you goes out to Magda, Diana, Phoenix, Suvera Ramdani, Elmarie Jacobs, Simone Sterenberg, Mfuneko, Zas van Heerden, Erin Worthington, Pashi, Josanne Buerta, Mario Lees, Tanya Rowe, Judy, Elias Cashby, Ashley Scott, Lynette van Heerden, Kestrel Poison Pink Lemon, Lorna Bagnall, and Anine Fisser for your support on Patreon. Thank you so much, everyone. Your support really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. If you like discounts, who doesn't? Head over to King Online for your health and beauty needs or Print Crowd for all your printing requirements and use the code TCSA10 at checkout for a 10% discount and support the show at the same time. Other forms of support that make a big difference include following the show on social media, inviting your friends, family, postman, hairdresser and parole officer to listen and leaving reviews on the podcast platform you use to listen. True Crime South Africa is, of course, my main podcast baby, but I've also hosted the Devil's Dorp Companion podcast, and in 2022, you could possibly see some more podcast projects popping up in your feed from me. You can follow my Facebook page to get updates on those new projects. Today's episode is going to be a tough one but you likely would have known that just from reading the title, if you're familiar with the case. If you've never heard of this case, then I will tell you up front that it involves the abuse and murder of a child. I know that not everyone can listen to these cases, so if this content is going to be too difficult for you, please press stop now, and I'll chat to you next week. If you are able to continue listening, I'd like you to know that these cases are just as difficult for me to talk about as they are for you to listen to. But as I've said before, if I find something difficult to research and talk about, then it's very likely a story that needs to be told. I will provide warnings before I get into the injuries that lead to the child's death, 
But be warned that there are descriptions of abuse throughout the episode, which are sadly unavoidable. Research for this episode comes from media articles, as well as records of live reporting that took place from the courtroom during the trial. So let's get into episode 75, The Murder of Poppy van der Mava. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Poppy, whose real name was Louisa Cornelia Susanna van der Mava, would only live for three years. But her story, and everything that led up to her death, starts long before that. It starts, perhaps in large part, with another Louisa Cornelia Susanna, her mother, whose own childhood, it would be alleged, was less than ideal. Louisa was one of three children born to her mother, Susanne. Louisa and her two brothers stayed with their mother when Susanne's marriage to their father ended and soon she would remarry. It would be this stepfather, Louisa would claim, that would abuse her both physically and sexually while he was married to her mother. A social worker would later say that this early victimization of Louisa paved the way for the way that many of her relationships would play out throughout her adult life. Louisa married her first husband, Freddie Else, when she was in her early 20s. The couple would have a son, Yaku, and a daughter, Marlies, together before their marriage ended. I will say that Louisa would allege that this relationship was abusive, but there is no further information about this in the public domain. After divorcing Freddie, Louisa met and married Christo van der Mava. She would give birth to a son with Christo soon after meeting him. The child remains unnamed for his own protection. Then, toward what would be the end of this relationship, Louisa gave birth to a little girl, who she named after herself. The child's doll-like appearance would earn her the nickname Poppy, which stuck throughout her life and beyond. Louisa would later say that her marriage to Christo had also been abusive, a claim that Christo denies. Despite this, though, toward the end of 2014, Louisa obtained a restraining order against Christo, which protected her and her children from her previous marriage from contact with him. She started divorce proceedings against him and left the home they lived in. In 2014, she would arrive in the northern Cape town of Oranya with her older daughter Marlies, her youngest son, and little Poppy. The town of Oranya becomes a bit of a character on its own in the story, so it warrants diving into the setup and history of the town a little before continuing. Aranya is a town in the Karoo region of the Northern Cape. It's located on the Orange River, hence its name, which is the Afrikaans word for orange. As at 2020, the town had 2,066 residents. What makes Aranya quite different from other towns in South Africa is that its residents are all only white and predominantly Afrikaner people. 
In a South Africa that has long transitioned from separating areas by race, the town has understandably received a lot of bad press for this separatist notion. And in response, residents have claimed that they simply want a place to practice their Africana culture in peace. They also claim that they do not actively ban other races or cultures from living in their town. The town has increased its independence from the rest of South Africa over the years, and they now have their own president, as well as their own currency. The Dutch Reformed Church plays a major role in the community, and I assume, in order to maintain the standards by which their town was formed, Anyone moving into Oranya is subjected to a welcoming and transition committee of sorts. So when single mother Louisa van der Merwe arrived in the town with three children, a local social worker, Heidi Smit, was tasked with helping the family to settle into the community. The children were put into a daycare service. Smit helped Louisa to find suitable accommodation and she helped her to arrange a job at a local supermarket. Smith would also assist Louisa with her divorce proceedings against her husband, which had become a contentious issue. When Smith discovered that Louisa and Christo had been married in community of property, she advised the woman that she could claim against Christo's pension fund as part of the divorce settlement. As a result, Louisa van der Merwe would end up receiving 800,000 rand. In addition, Christo needed to pay monthly maintenance towards the needs of his son and daughter. But it would be the custody issue that would become the most contentious of the separation. The restraining order that Louisa had against Christo meant that the magistrate handling their custody negotiations was hesitant to allow equal custody, and while this was being battled out in court, Christo was only allowed occasional supervised visits with his children. He would see them three times in two years. The children were allowed to visit their grandparents, Christo's parents, and he was entitled to phone calls with the children every Sunday. I assume, as part of building his own case, Christo would record all of these phone calls with his children. Later, some of these recordings would make it into the public domain, and what at the time was just a very normal conversation between father and daughter would take on a chilling slant. Smith would say that her initial observations of the Fundamava family was that the children seemed relatively normal for their ages, although the little boy occasionally had emotional meltdowns. Poppy was still very little at this stage, and according to Smith, she noticed nothing strange about the child in these early days in Oranya. One thing that Smith and others from Oranya do talk about, that I personally found a bit strange, is the role that Louisa's oldest daughter, Marlies, played in the family. With Louisa working, Smith acknowledged that the then 14-year-old Marlies was the main caregiver for the younger children. She also described the teenager as being the stabilizing force in the household, saying that Louisa seemed emotional and highly strung, and Marlies was much calmer and seemed to be able to control the children better. Marlies herself would later say that this perception had been entirely accurate. 
In fact, she was essentially playing a mother role to her two younger half-siblings. She also did most of the housework, including cooking and cleaning. Now, this young girl had already been through quite a lot. She'd seen her mother through two messy marriages and moved around with her. So I guess it stands to reason that she would be more mature than her peers. But she should not have had to have been. I will say, and this is just my opinion, but it is a bit annoying to me that a social worker would accept that a 14-year-old girl was the main caregiver for two children under five, and that she had so much domestic responsibility put on her. And although this should have been bad enough, my Lise would soon realise that the worst was yet to come. In 2015, Kobus Kukumur moved to Aranya. He had been born and raised in Pretoria and matriculated there before earning a qualification as an electrician. He worked as a chef in the army for a while at one stage. Kobus Kukumur had a rather patchy past with relationships too. He had been married twice, with his first marriage ending after the birth of one child. He would later say that he actually didn't know where that child was, and he believed that he may have moved to the United Kingdom with his mother. He would marry again and have another child, but that relationship would also end soon after the birth of his child, and he would not play much of a role in that child's life either, except for, by his own admission, occasionally paying maintenance when he could afford to. By the time Corbus moved to Oranya, he was unemployed and relatively broke. The Oranya Welcoming Committee was able to arrange employment for him at the same supermarket Louisa worked at, and it would be this fateful convergence of paths that would set the stage for the next relationship in Louisa and Corbus's lives with deadly consequences. Louisa and Corbus dated for just a few months before he proposed to her, and she accepted. The couple had been living together for a short period before their marriage, and to the outside world the family seemed happy. Although Marlies does not talk much about the months that she spent living with Corbus Kukumur, later court testimony and charges would prove that the home was anything but happy from day one. Louisa and Corbus were married on the 14th of November 2015. On the 15th of November 2015, Marlies Else, Louisa's daughter, was told that she was no longer welcome in the Kukumur home. The teenager boarded a bus and went to live with her father in the Eastern Cape. The two younger children who'd become so attached to their older sister that very often they called her Mommy, watched as their entire world changed overnight. Soon after the pair married, Louisa resigned from her job at the supermarket. Corbus continued to work there for a while, but Louisa was now at home. Poppy's brother would be pulled out of daycare at the end of 2015, but workers there would make some very concerning observations about the child and his mother and stepfather, before he was removed from the school. One teacher at the school said that when Corbus and Louisa came to collect the child in the afternoon, he would often run and hide in the toilet. Corbus and Louisa had told the teacher that she would need to watch the boy 
because he was prone to aggressive outbursts. The teacher, however, didn't see any aggression from the boy. Rather, she described him as sweet and loving. When she conveyed to the couple that his behaviour seemed quite different from what they described, Corbus asked whether the child might be being drugged at the school, because he was definitely not like that at home. The boy also often came to school in clothing that didn't seem to belong to him. On many occasions, in the heat of summer, he wore a large, thick jacket to school. When the teacher asked if she could take it off for him because he must be hot, the boy refused and said he would get into trouble with his mother and Corbus if he took it off. Now, in hindsight, we can only wonder what the jacket was hiding. The boy was taken out of the daycare soon after some of these incidents occurred. Poppy, though, remained in the daycare. Being very young at the time, she was less able to communicate, but teachers did notice that the child's behaviour was quite different from what they would expect for a child of her age. The bruises had started to appear early on. At first they were in strange places, like her earlobes and her feet, but soon fresh bruises appeared before the old ones could heal. When teachers asked the kokumurs where all the injuries were coming from, the responses differed. For the most part, they blamed rough play between Poppy and her brother, the latter of which had already been cast as aggressive by the kokumurs. Sometimes Corbus claimed that the girl was just clumsy or that she would come back from visiting her grandmother with bruises. The teachers at the daycare, of course, were only getting one side of the coin, but there was someone else who was watching the Kukumurs very closely, and he was privy to their home interactions. Yaku Ru lived next door to the Kukumurs. He said that initially the family was very withdrawn, and he hardly saw or heard them. But within a few months, he started to notice interactions between the parents and the children that worried him. The screaming he heard at night was, in his opinion, more than a normal family interaction. He would often hear Louisa screaming at the children for having messed in the bed. He also noticed that the children were increasingly injured. On one occasion, he witnessed Corbus Kukumu spraying the children with a hosepipe as punishment and making them stand naked in the yard to dry. This occurred, Rue says, on one of the coldest days in winter. One night, Rue heard a lot of screaming going on next door and could make out that Poppy had had an accident in the bed. He heard a resounding crash, and a few days later, he saw the three-year-old with cast on her leg. When Rue asked Louisa what had happened, she said that the girl had fallen. The man noticed that while the girl had the cast on her leg, her parents offered her no assistance in day-to-day activities. She was made to carry her own suitcase and get in and out of Corbus's large bucky by herself. Rue also said that he had regularly heard Louisa instructing Corbus to discipline the children. Rue could not get these incidents out of his mind, and in 2016, he reported his concerns to the local social services office. 
Heidi Smith, who was already familiar with the Kukumura family, was tasked with investigating the allegations of abuse. Smith, though, was a regular at the daycare centre that the children attended, and she was already well aware that questions were being asked by others besides Rue. As a result, the Kukumus were called in for a meeting. Of course, all allegations of abuse were denied, but Smith explained that she would like to take a few steps to ensure the safety of the children. This included weekly doctor's visits during which the children's physical condition, including any injuries, would be documented. She also wanted the Kukumus to attend counselling sessions. The doctor that was responsible for assessing the children weekly would later admit that when she had seen some bruises on Poppy, she'd asked the child what had happened, and the little girl had only been able to say, They hurt me. But because the three-year-old child could not identify who they were, the doctor did not conclude that abuse was occurring. It is important to note at this point that according to the Children's Act, the teachers at the daycare, the social worker and the doctor are mandatory reporters. They are mandated by law to report any suspicions of child abuse to the police. But here's the thing. Aranya doesn't have its own police station. Although they consider themselves a semi-independent region, their number of residents does not warrant that they have their own police station. So the closest SAPS reporting station is in Hopetown, which is 42 kilometers from Oranya. Hopetown SAPS would later confirm that they received no reports of a possible child abuse case occurring in Oranya during the period that the Kukumus lived there. So essentially, Oranya was attempting to deal with the Kukumus themselves. Whether or not the eventual intention would be to report to the authorities or not will never be known. But even if that intention existed, it would come too late. In May 2016, Louisa's brother died of kidney failure. Her mother, Susan Botma, would later say that after her daughter had married Corbus, she had seen her very rarely. Now, with the death in the family, though, Susan was able to see her daughter and grandchildren for the first time in a while, for a short period. One night, she was bathing her grandson when she noticed bruises on his body. She asked the boy what had happened, and he told her that Corbus had hit him. Susan spoke to her daughter, who claimed that the boy was lying but the older woman was not satisfied. She noticed that her grandchildren did not look healthy, and she approached a pastor at a local church for advice. She told the man that she suspected that Corbus Kukumur was abusing her grandchildren and her daughter, and asked how she could go about getting them help. The woman says that the pastor replied by admonishing her. He told her that she should not be interfering in her daughter's marriage. Susan Botma, duly chided by a person whose standing in the community she respected, never again questioned what was happening in her daughter's home. Although the Kukumus seemed to play along with the requirements of the social worker in Oranya at first, 
even going for a few counseling sessions and submitting the children to the doctor's visits. Tension was mounting in the household. Neighbor Yakuru spoke of this period around August 2016, saying that tempers seemed to be even more stretched than usual next door, and he felt that the children were just constantly screaming and crying. Although he had reported his concerns to the social worker, he had been assured that the situation was being dealt with. But then, one morning in September 2016, he woke up to find his neighbours had left in the middle of the night. Corbus Kukumur did not resign from his job. He simply didn't go back. The social worker Heidi Smith discovered that the Kukumurs had left Oranya when the school phoned her to say that Poppy had not come back to school. When she went to the house, she realised that the family had indeed left town. The Kukumurs did not just leave town, though. In the middle of the night, they packed all of their belongings that could fit into their bucky and drove almost eight hours to the town of Brits. The town of Brits is quite close to where Corbus Kukumu grew up. It is a predominantly farming community, and it was on a farm in an area called Mamuchelskral that the family found accommodation. While the community of Aranya would have a good amount of information to offer, the community of Brits had hardly had a chance to get to know the Kukumurs before all hell would break loose in their town. Please be warned that I am about to get into descriptions of injuries to Poppy Fundamava. On the 25th of October 2016, Corbus Kukumur's bucky screeched to a halt in the parking lot of Brits Provincial Hospital. Paramedic Morris de Beer was tidying his ambulance after having dropped off a patient at the hospital when he saw the man he would come to know as Corbus Kukumur walking through the parking lot, holding the limp body of a small girl. Corbus was calling out for help as he walked. Morris ran up to him and immediately noticed that the young child was already blue around her lips, indicating that she had not been breathing for some time. Morris grabbed the child from Kukumu's arms and told him to follow, which he did with Louisa and her five-year-old son in tow. Morris placed the girl on the first bed he found in the ER and shouted to the nurses to get a doctor. Getting ready to start CPR in an attempt to revive the girl, Morris tried to open her mouth. It was then that he realised that rigor mortis was already setting in. Three-year-old Poppy Fandamava was far beyond saving. Morris then stood back and looked at the girl who was, according to him, covered in bruises. He asked Kukumur where Poppy had gotten the bruises from and the man said she'd fallen around in the bucky on the way there. By this point, Dr. Richard Goomba arrived at Poppy's bedside, and as Morris had, attempted to see if there was anything that could be done for her. As the family stood back, Morris noticed the five-year-old boy standing in the corner, ashen-faced. He approached the boy, bending down to look him in the eye, and asked what had happened to his sister. The little boy avoided eye contact 
but his words were clear. Poppy didn't want to eat her food. Dr. Gumbo was shocked at the tiny body he saw in front of him. Although clearly beyond saving, the condition of the child was extremely concerning. A very large bruise and swelling on Poppy's forehead seemed to point to a head injury. The girl only had a pair of panties on when she was brought in, and the doctor would later say that there was almost no part of her body that was not blue. The Kukumurs insisted that most of the bruises had occurred on the drive to the hospital. Gumbo was not falling for it. He took the family into his office and told them he was calling the police. The Kukumurs insisted that it was not necessary to get the police involved, but Gumba told them that it was not up to them. Poppy's tiny, broken body was photographed in situ. When Sergeant Gift Matome arrived at the hospital in response to Dr. Gumba's call, he was taken aside by the doctor and shown the photographs. The seasoned police officer, who had a 13-month-old daughter himself, could not control the tears that flowed down his face. He had never seen a three-year-old child look so utterly broken in his entire career. Composing himself, Matome asked to be taken to the parents. Matome went on to interview both Louisa and Corba separately at the hospital. Corbus told the officer that Poppy had been watching television when she'd suddenly collapsed and stopped breathing. For the most part, Louisa told the same story, but when pressed about the huge welt on her daughter's forehead, she admitted that Corbus had hit the child's head against a cupboard the day before. Corbus Kukumur was arrested at the hospital and taken into custody. Louisa was allowed to go home with her son. She would claim that she'd been so isolated during her marriage that she did not even know how to get home, and she'd had to phone her landlord to give her directions. This would only be the start of Louisa's eventual allegation against her husband. The isolation, she says, started immediately after they'd been married. She wasn't allowed to make phone calls, and if she took any, it had to be on speakerphone, so that Corbus could hear. When the news broke that a three-year-old girl had died and her stepfather had been arrested in connection with her death, South Africa was wrapped in horror. For a long time, the haunting image of the blonde-haired, blue-eyed girl would stare out at readers from screens and newspapers, and people started to get angry. Very angry. The death threats against Corpus Kukumur started almost immediately after his arrest. The anger directed towards Louisa would take a little longer to evolve, but as soon as it became clear that this had not been a one-off event and that the abuse had occurred over the course of many months, Louisa too was in the firing line. In November 2016, Corbus Kukumur was denied bail. Inside the court, Officers had to remove several members of the public who shouted threats at the man. In the meantime, Malise else had received the horrifying news that her little sister was dead. She would later relay how guilty she'd felt at that moment. She remembered how Poppy would occasionally slip and call her mommy. 
and when she discovered the horrendous way that her sister had died, she thought that, if she were her mommy, at least she wouldn't be dead. Sergeant Matoma was not entirely convinced that Louisa Kukumur was free from blame, but he decided to wait for the autopsy results before taking further action. On the 4th of November, Poppy van der Mavo was laid to rest. While the funeral was undoubtedly emotional, it was Louisa's appearance that really got tongues wagging. The woman's face was black and blue, and she had clearly been badly beaten. It would emerge that a woman posing as a police officer had arrived at Louisa Kukumur's home in the days after Poppy's death. She'd convinced Louisa that she needed to go with her for questioning, and Louisa had complied. Instead of going to the police station, though, Louisa says she was taken to an isolated piece of land and beaten up. During the beating, the woman told Louisa that she needed to tell the truth about what had happened to Poppy. Shortly after Poppy's funeral, her brother was taken into the custody of social services. He could not be placed with his biological father because of the restraining order against the man, but he was placed with an unnamed member of the family. In December 2016, Sergeant Matome received the results from Poppy's autopsy. Dr. Gert Simon said in his report that Poppy had died from one or more blows to the head. He could not discount the possibility that the child had been kicked or that her head had been smashed into a solid surface. This was not all, though. Dr. Simon noted that there were numerous other injuries in various stages of healing on the girl's body. There was no doubt that the child had been a victim of sustained and deliberate physical abuse over a long period of time. This was all that Sergeant Matoma needed. On the 16th of December, he arrived at Louisa's home. He discussed the results of the autopsy with her and explained that her story did not match the evidence. Louisa then began to add that she'd last seen Poppy lying in front of the television when Corbus had come home, but then she'd gone outside, and when she came back in, she found her daughter blue and not breathing in the bathroom. She didn't know if Corbus had perhaps done something to her, but the previous nights Poppy had messed in the bed, and she had seen the child's head hit against the cupboard. Matome arrested Louisa Kukumur on a charge of murder and a charge of child abuse. When South Africa discovered that Louisa had likely not been the innocent bystander she presented herself as, she was greeted with the same rage and threats her husband had received. On the 20th of December 2016, Louisa Kukumur was denied parole. Initially, Corbus Kukumur was unable to find an attorney that was willing to represent him, and this, as well as several other aspects of the case, would continue to delay the start of the trial for almost a year. In May 2017, Kukumur's defence attorney indicated that they were going to apply for leave to strike the case off the roll because their client was experiencing undue hardship in prison while waiting for his trial. Both Louisa and Corbus were facing four charges each, one of the murder of Poppy, one of abusing her, and two other counts of child abuse which applied to Poppy's brother and to Poppy's half-sister, Marlies, 
who had since also admitted to having been beaten by Corbus while her mother watched. Both pleaded not guilty to all charges when their trial eventually got underway in the Gauteng High Court in October 2017. In his statements, Corbus claimed that he had only ever hit the children on their hands and bottoms with a wooden spoon which he categorized as discipline. He said that Louisa spent much more time with the children and he had no idea what she'd done to them. He said that in the months before her death, Poppy had started to have episodes during which she would lay on her back and stare blankly up at the ceiling. She would sometimes stop breathing during these episodes. He claimed that they had tried to get medical assistance, but doctors had said there was nothing wrong with Poppy. In the household, they referred to these episodes as Poppy playing dead. Kukumu claimed that the night before Poppy had died, she had messed in the bed and Louisa had lost her temper and thrown the girl against the cupboard. According to him, when he got home from grocery shopping on the 25th of October, Louisa had come out to the car to tell him that Poppy was playing dead again. He said he'd gone inside and shook the child and she'd come round. He then went on with offloading the groceries. A while later, he claimed he'd been outside at the braai when Louisa had again told him that Poppy wasn't breathing. This time when he went inside, the girl did not rouse, and after throwing water on her face, attempting mouth-to-mouth, and thumping her on her back, there was no response, and they had rushed her to hospital. Louisa would admit that Quibus had been assaulting her children, but she claimed that she was too scared to stand up to him. She continued to insist that she had never instructed Corbus to assault the children and that she had never taken part in the abuse. Poppy's now six-year-old brother also testified. Through a remote camera setup, he told the courtroom that on the day Poppy had died, Corbus had stuck her head in the toilet and flushed it. But Poppy did not wake up. He spoke of several instances in which he and his sister had been beaten, kicked, and thrown around. When asked what his mother was doing when Poppy was unconscious and dying on the day of her death, he said that she stood in the doorway and watched. Marlies else also testified in court to the abuse that was inflicted on her and what she had witnessed happening to her brother and sister. Later, she would say that at Poppy's funeral, she'd felt sad for her mother, but very soon, that sadness turned to rage. Pretty early on in the trial, it became clear that the presiding judge, Bam, was very concerned that the residents of Aranya had tried to hide what was happening in their town by not following through on their mandate to report Poppy's suspected abuse to the police in Hope Town. At one point, an application was made to the NPA to charge others in this case with culpability in Poppy's murder, but the NPA would decline to prosecute. In passing down his judgments in December 2017, Judge Bam said that both parents were, in his opinion, equally guilty of the murder of Poppy Fandamava. He also condemned the actions of those who had essentially aided in continuing the abuse of the girl by not reporting her abuse to the police and doing nothing when the Kukumurs fled town. 
In 2018, while awaiting sentence, Kurbus Kukumu tried on two separate occasions to end his life. On one occasion, he slit his wrists with a sharp object, and on the other, he somehow obtained a bottle of Jay's cleaning fluid and drank it. These attempts would only serve to delay the inevitable, though. In May 2018, both Luisa Kukumur and Kurbus Kukumur received life sentences for the murder of Poppy van der Mava. They were also found guilty of abusing the two other children and given additional years added to their sentence for this. Speaking to journalists after the sentence, Sergeant Matome said that although those images of Poppy still haunted him, he felt as though he had achieved some form of justice for her, especially since her mother was also made to answer for her part in the child's death. Louisa would eventually reveal that on the day in question, Poppy had been lethargic the entire day. This is very likely from the serious head wound that had been inflicted on her the day before. When Corbus arrived home, she claims that she told them the girl was refusing to eat and looking very sleepy. Corbus had gone over to Poppy and kicked her in the stomach. She couldn't remember if Poppy had reacted when Corbus kicked her, but she says that then she turned around and left the house to get the groceries out the car. Yes, her husband kicked her three-year-old daughter in the stomach, and she went to fetch the groceries. When she returned, Poppy was blue and laying in the bathroom. From the descriptions the medic gave of how Poppy's mouth had already been impossible to open by the time he saw her at the hospital, it is very likely that she had already been dead for at least an hour, if not more, by the time she arrived at the hospital. Although the perpetrators were behind bars, South Africa found it difficult to move on from Poppy's story, and perhaps rightly so. Her short life highlighted the importance of mandated reporters doing what they are bound by law to do. The identity of Poppy's brother is protected by law. We do not know his current whereabouts or situation, but I can only hope that he is doing well. Poppy's biological father was quite active in the media during the trial, condemning both Corbus and Louisa for murdering his daughter. In 2019, it emerged that he was being sought by police on charges of domestic violence after he allegedly assaulted his new wife. The woman who spoke to the media told journalists that during Poppy's trial, there had been several days when she couldn't attend because she alleges her husband had beaten her so badly that she couldn't see. Fundamava denies all of these allegations. If you've been able to listen this far, then you are likely waiting for my summation of the horrendousness of the actions of these two people. For me to condemn the consistently violent Corbus Kukumur and vilify Louisa Kukumur for allowing her daughter to be murdered and whatever role she played in addition. Well, I'm not going to. Because honestly, I don't even want to waste another single breath on these people. So instead, let's talk about Poppy. Marlies Else recalls how her little sister, 
would giggle when she played with her. Her teachers recall the girl's big blue eyes and her sweet nature. Her brother recalls how much fun they had playing together. She only had three years, but her face is burned into the memory of thousands. In hearing the details of Poppy van der Merwe's death, South African singer Stephen Fasahi wrote a song in her honour, and it is with these words that I would like to end this episode. You're the new star in the sky tonight. Your name was called, and you had to go. You're free. This world was too cruel for someone like you. One last hurt, but now it's over. In your eyes was the pain of a thousand years, and what the world owes you we will never be able to repay. One last tear rolled down your cheek. You are free. Play in the clouds on the back of rainbows. It was winter where you were, but now there's only sun. You are free. Rest gently, Poppy. Thank you for listening to episode 75, The Murder of Poppy van If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to the show on the platform you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next Friday with another episode. Until then, as always, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon.